Hey, welcome to Project Freelance. This is a podcast for freelancers, whether you are a videographer, a photographer, a musician, if you are, if you make things with your hands, if you're a welder, I don't know what it is you do, but if you're a freelancer, this is the podcast for you. And my name is Kay Anagonio, and I am your host here on Project Freelance. If you guys are new to the podcast, I hope you'll hit that subscribe button. I hope you enjoy this episode with Emmy Award-winning producer and DP Graham Sheldon. I met Graham at a Sigma event at Sigma Burbank. I film recap videos and behind-the-scenes videos for Sigma. And if you don't know who Sigma is, they are a lens, and now they have their own camera, the Sigma FP. And so I wanted to talk to Graham about some of the things that he has done in his career as a producer and a DP. I've seen him give multiple sessions, seminars, whatever you want to call them. And I wanted to talk to him here on Project Freelance to just dive deeper into some of those projects he's worked on. One of the things he's done is he actually got to explore and film a project in Chernobyl. And I wanted to know what it was like to go to Chernobyl because it is super high on my list of places to explore. If you guys didn't know, I like to explore abandoned places when I'm not freelancing when I'm not doing this podcast I go to abandoned places I actually have a book out a photography book called no tracers an urban explorer's diary and in that book you will find amazing photos and diary entries from my explorations if you guys want to check that out I'll put a link down in the description but before we get into this podcast there are a couple housekeeping things I want you guys to know about First of all, there are a bunch of affiliate links down in the description. If you guys need camera gear, if you need a backpack, if you need a GoPro, if you need audio equipment, if you need anything, there are a bunch of links down in the description that will help you out. Those are things that I've curated that I personally use that I think you guys would get a lot of use out of. Not only are there affiliate links down there, but there are also links to things like Mile IQ, where you can track your mileage if you are a freelancer and you drive a lot like I do. I have to keep track of my mileage for tax purposes, so I use MileIQ to do that. There are a bunch of links down there that I think will help you guys out, so if you want to check those out at your leisure, please do. And without further ado, we're going to jump into this podcast with Graham Sheldon. Graham, if you will do me a huge favor and introduce yourself to the people and what it is that you do as a freelancer. Yeah, my name is Graham Sheldon. I'm a uh, director of photography, uh, producer, um, and that's me. So let's talk about how you got into the world of videography. Yeah, so I got started pretty much as early as I can remember, to be honest, really thanks to my father, who uh, was also a producer, but a writer as well in the industry. Back in uh, the 80s, he worked on some of those kind of iconic shows like Star Trek Next Generation, Charlie's Angels things like that. So I sort of grew up in and around entertainment. You know, I was never sort of pushed to go get one of those quote unquote safe jobs. Uh, really because of him, you know, my my mom also a very, you know, artsy person, writer, painter. So I think both of them really just, you know, pushed me to go do whatever I wanted, honestly, in terms of a career. So, um, you know, I went to Indiana University after growing up in California and then traveling around a lot over the years. Um, and, you know, I kind of, I tell people I rebelled a little bit, you know, trying to not go to one of those sort of stock film schools that you hear about. But I absolutely loved my time at Indiana University, met a lot of incredible people that remain part of my network to this day. And then 
met my now wife, Rin, there, and we run a production company together. And we moved out to California basically right after graduating from Indiana University. And um, that's it. Got right into the freelance game. Um, and I've sort of, I've been in house a few places for short stints, but for the most part, for a little over a decade, I've been entirely freelance working in video games, television, uh, and then film. What made you want to go the freelance route? Like you could have just gotten a safe job. What made you want to step outside and be a rebel and, and do something a little bit different? Well, I think, I mean, a little bit like UK, I mean, you have a lot of hyphens, right? You do a lot of different things. I feel kind of the same. I, you know, I like to fly in the face of specialization, I say, right? Instead of just being one thing. I think it's such an incredibly hard thing to have a full-time career in entertainment that you really have to give yourself every possibility to get hired. So I sort of, you know, I got my like part 107 drone license. I did all of those things so that I would sort of be infinitely hireable. But there is something about freelance that, um, you know, it's very addictive. There's a lot of freedom that comes with it, both pros and cons with that, obviously. But just being in-house somewhere, being nine to five in a cubicle, yeah, just didn't, just didn't appeal to me. You know, the fluorescent lighting kind of gets to you, the general meetups around the coffee stand. I mean, it's all very office space, but definitely prefer the freedom that comes with being freelance. Absolutely. So growing up, did you have an interest in photo photography or videography? Oh, yeah. I mean, some of my um, earliest sort of tests with special effects involved a shish kebab skewer and a little fighter plane that was duct taped to the end of the skewer. And I made a little, you know, like Star Wars trench run sort of set up. And then I tried to chroma key out the skewer so that the fighter plane would be flying through, you know, these little cardboard buildings. Did it turn out great? No, probably not. But I mean, I have just tons of memories of trying to do things like that. And of course, you know, I, for whatever reason, my father um, didn't show me sort of the classic television shows I feel like that everyone grew up with. Instead, I was watching like Bridge Over the River Kwai and, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and all these sort of like 60s classics um, at a very young age, like eight years old. I was sort of all about Hitchcock at like 11, you know, just very, very, I think, young for these kinds of films. But um, that was always sort of in and around photography. I always had a camera. I mean, you know, back in the day, half a megapixel or whatever it was, just <laughs> terrible looking handy cams. But I always had a camera. I was always taking photos of something. I was always lassoed into being like the swim team videographer, you know what I mean? Or like taking the the photos of the play that I happened to be doing in, in middle school, things like that. So I was always getting roped into doing it. So it just was sort of natural. You were basically yearbook guy in high school. I, I mean, I, you know, honestly, I wasn't on the yearbook team. I sort of was separated between the theater group, the swim team group, um, and then just sort of general history nerds. So I, I transitioned between those three groups. I don't know. I never got into the yearbook thing. Um, just the journalism thing was, was never something that appealed to me. Sort of the stock intro, you know what I mean? F their thesis statement that the format behind journalism was never really my thing, to be honest. But yeah. Let's go talk about education a little bit more. Um, so you studied, you didn't go to a typical, you know, film school. I, I went to a film school. I went to like a, what well, was a, the school of audio engineering, but they also had film and games design and graphics and all kinds of cool stuff, animation, um, would you recommend studying film in a college setting? 
You know, that's such an interesting question. Um, I, I tell everyone this. It's a little bit of a demoralizing stat, but I, I tell everyone I learned, I learned 5% of what I know now from school. And then even now, after having done this for over a decade, as I mentioned, I feel like I know 10% of it, right? Of whatever it is, of, of art or entertainment or whatever it is we're calling this thing. I, I, you know, I have 90% still to go. And everyone gets super bummed out, like four years of your life, you know, and you only learn 5% of, of it. But the point is, though, that you, you're getting those soft skills. You're getting those collaborative skills, the ability, you know, obviously to work with teams. You're also getting that network of people that are all in sort of the same headspace, the same point in life that are all moving to, you know, Southern California in our case to go make it in the, you know, go make their dream happen. So there's a ton, a ton of value in, in that part of the whole film school experience. I don't know if you had a different experience. Do you feel like you learned 5% from where you went or more? Yeah, no, I definitely feel like I learned about 5% from there. I spent my time while I was studying film. I lived in Dubai, so I, I studied at on campus. And then after I got off campus, I went straight to the skydive drop zone and I did uh, like videography work there as an intern. So, you know, I was learning the fundamentals of film in film school, but I was learning the practical side of it through an internship. Oh, no kidding. See, there's almost more value, I think, at that stage of your life to doing things like jumping out of planes and sort of like living because it informs um, all of your work, you know, in your mid late 20s and your 30s and 40s and beyond. So yeah, make sure you're doing the adventuring stuff for sure. Yeah, definitely. So about your production company with your wife. So what made you want to start, you know, a production company uh, together with her? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, moved out to San Diego together um, uh, right out of school just because, honestly, we'd been to San Diego on spring break and just thought it was amazing. And then I think there's also something to the big fish, small pond thing with freelance. Um, You know, right out of school when you're in your early 20s, moving to Los Angeles when you're competing as a DP against, like, people in the ASC, people on long-running network shows. It's really tricky. So we moved out to San Diego. It's sort of a a natural evolution, I think, of freelance that you end up having some sort of entity, whether it's an LLC or whatever. Um, But yeah, we have a production company. You know, we've done television projects, films. um, And I mean, it just makes a ton of sense, especially for me, because primarily my job title is either producer or DP or both. So it just makes sense to sort of have an entity um, and just, you know, assets, editing bays, the whole thing, the cameras, the lenses, etc. To sort of make the thing soup to nuts. And I think there's a lot of value in that. I mean, we can go into owning versus renting later, but we certainly have a lot of equipment and that does help our budgets because we can do passion projects. We can just give ourselves, you know, our own huge lighting kit if we need to, you know, and just go out and make a thing. Um, and I like just being able to be spontaneous and go, you know, make whatever it is fast versus having to work with many different parties and have more negotiations over time. When you first moved out to Southern California, how long did it take for your freelance business, your production company to take off? Was it immediate? Did it take like a year? Like how long did it take for it to to get off the ground? Yeah, great question. So I moved out and my first job, you know, those people outside of uh, Target that bug you for money with clipboards? Do you know these people? 100%. Yeah, okay. So I was a canvasser, which is, I don't know, the technical term, right? So I was a canvasser for about three and a half months, 
raising money um, to, at the time is to overturn Prop 8, legalize uh, gay marriage in the state of California. So, and the other one was uh, for for uh, animals, <laughs> just generically like <laughs> puppies and whales. You know, people ask me, was I raising money for two causes at the same time? No, I'd go out one day and I'd raise money to overturn Prop 8, and the next day I'd raise money for for puppies, or it'd be a couple weeks on either cause or whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, as far as a um, way to learn the sales skills part of the business, this is a pretty darn good way, honestly. As standing outside a Target, um, you know, somebody would uh, sort of yell a, yell a slur at me, honestly, and then the next person would give money. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and I became sort of okay with that. It doesn't say great things about our culture, but I sort of figured out how to um, raise money for both of those different uh, fields, you know, um, even in sort of a hostile environment. So after about three-ish months doing that, I went to an open call that I found on Craigslist for a small um, network production company in San Diego. And then Weirdly, I got hired as a on-camera host slash associate producer. Wow. Personally, I think primarily around my ability to read a teleprompter. So I, I should have mentioned at IU, I got a degree in theater and then also in film. Um, and so the theater training came in very quickly right out of the gate. And I just got that job um, doing sort of travel stuff. And uh, one of my first jobs for this company, I was at New York Fashion Week. And they sort of asked me, like, hey, do you know anything about fashion? And I said, um, you know, I'm thinking, well, I've seen Devil Wears Prada. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, kind of. And then I was at New York Fashion Week, you know, three days later and did that for a couple years in a row just as a producer uh, on-camera host, interviewing fashion designers. Uh, I mean, I I interviewed this person called uh, Bobby Brown. Are you familiar with Bobby Brown Cosmetics? Does this ring any? Yes. Yeah, okay. So quick story. I was talking to her and I'm like, hey, what's your name? And she's like, Bobby Brown. I'm like, cool, what do you do? And she's like, uh, you know, cosmetics. <laughs> and I'm like, what's your company name? And she's like, Bobby Brown. And I was like, ooh, fake it, toward, you know, till you make it. Not always working. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's sort of how I got started. Wow. That's so fascinating. So <laughs> I love that you were raising money for the gays and for the puppies at the same time. I mean, not at the same time, but at the same time. <laughs> I mean, the timeline, I mean, it's only three months, right? So the timeline was crazy close. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Different causes to be sure. I'm not saying they're the same. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Um, so Let's talk about some of the bigger projects you've worked on. Talk to me about, well, first of all, I want to I want to talk about Bear Grylls because Bear Grylls, I grew up watching Bear, you know. I loved watching Man vs. Wild and all the crazy things he got up to. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the other projects you've worked on. Yeah, so um, <laughs> the island with Bear Grylls is a very unique one when it uh, comes to my career. So I've, I've always had this competitive streak, right? I, you know, I think you kind of have to. It's when it becomes not healthy that it's a problem, but I've always been competitive. You know, I've always been competitive with myself. And a casting director reached out to me and they said, hey, we're looking for somebody with sort of rough environment training, you know, that has been that can also um, be on camera, like a producer shooter talent kind of role. 
And just the the role itself was kind of interesting. I thought, okay, that's weird, being on camera and also shooting. I'm not sure how that's going to work. And then they, ne- they never told me what the show was, honestly, through like three months of the casting process. Wow. And they're like, are you okay, you know, in situations where you might not have any water or food? I was like, eh, I don't know. And I'd never really been camping, so they thought that was hilarious, right? They're like, oh, this is so funny. We're going to cast the kid who's never been, you know, in camping at all. So I became that guy. Now, I had been, you know, on on pretty um, intense shoots. By that time, I had been to Chernobyl and did a documentary at Chernobyl. You know, I'd um, done a lot of stuff in in Cuba at the time. Cuba was not very friendly to um, especially U.S.-based documentary filmmakers, so I'd, I'd worked in hostile environments, so I felt comfortable saying I'm okay in hostile environments. That doesn't mean I'm okay at camping. Um, and so I just kept getting further and further through the casting process. And then I started wanting it, you know? You get to a point where you're like, well, I've devoted so many Skype interviews that I just I kind of want this thing, even though I don't know what this thing is. So... Um, they're like, they, they sent me to a hotel room right by LAX for like the final round of casting. All the NBC executives were there. And it's a really great mindset to be in, in these sort of high stress situations when you're not really worried about getting the job. Like I wanted it for competitive reasons, but I was, I had a fine career. I was getting enough gigs by this point. I didn't like need it, need it to eat and pay rent, you know? So I think that attitude came off well throughout the casting process. And then at this final stage, and then finally, they're like, okay, um, in a week, you're going to get on a plane and go to Panama. Um, and so I, I, you know, went to Panama and they kept the cast separate. So I was cast, but then we also shot the whole season. And that's a little weird for people to wrap their heads around. But there's 14 men that did this series on NBC over the summer. Um, four of us are producer shooter types. You know, some of the, some of the guys had like Vice on HBO experience, Nat Geo, things like that, myself, and then 10 sort of average American guys. And the whole point of the show is to find out like, can the modern man survive it in a, you know, survive in a tricky survival situation, right? That's like the thesis. And would we turn on each other? You know, of course, there was a little bit of that. And I thought since it was from the executive producer of things like Survivor and Amazing Race and stuff like that, I thought they were going to give us like a certain amount of rice and beans and water. None of that happened. It was the dry season. You know, (laughs) I like I fainted at one point. Um, But the show starts that two of us volunteer. We jump off a boat. Bear Grylls is like, go, you know, who wants to swim to shore? Myself and this great a friend of mine to this day named Rick, we swim to shore, we pick up two cameras and we point them at each other. And I'm like, hey, I'm Graham. Hey, I'm Rick. And then the series starts. Um, And that's sort of the conceit. And we'd change out our batteries at night. We would put them in pelican cases in the jungle and uh, production assistants would take a boat over from like the main island where production was based uh, to this separate island where we were and there was just nobody else on the island. It was just the 14 of us. They'd swap our media out. They'd swap our batteries out they'd go back you know and every night we just we would never would see them um episode two ends with will graham drown will benji and graham drown i think is like the cliffhanger out you know the tides are coming up and the there's like a 40 foot um tide differential in panama which nobody had told me (laughs) so the tides come in (laughs) 
real quick. I dropped one of NBC's walkies off a cliff at that same point. And then I finally just tied the, a camera to a tree and just took the memory card out because I'm like, I'm just going to straight up drown here unless I just take the memory card out. So yeah, it was uh, certainly, certainly an experience uh, doing NBC's The Island. <laughs> so yeah, I've always wondered how they get batteries charged and do all these things on these remote in these remote locations so it's kind of cool to hear you know the behind the scenes how they would come to the island with their boat pick up your stuff and then bring it back to you the next day and they would just leave you on this island yeah i mean we'd just be there you know i at one point we had a contestant fall a contestant i don't know there was, you didn't win anything if you survived so maybe <laughs> contestants are wrong oh great the wrong word we um so one of the participants fell on his spine and um, I was trying to reach somebody to have, uh, you know, so we had a helicopter come in and airlift him. And we had a bunch of uh, former SAS guys, um, which are sort of British Navy SEALs, sort of watching our backs. So when everyone got hurt, they came in and airlifted them. Um, and I actually called the sat phone we had for emergencies. And there's one number on the sat phone. You weren't allowed to use it for, you know, personal stuff. And it was the main NBC line. So I called like the lobby in Universal City. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, somebody got hurt on a show we're doing and they fell on their back. Can you get me in touch with production? And she's like, um, let me try to find someone, you know. So and I hung out on the phone for like 10 minutes as we spent, I don't know how much per minute of sat calls from Panama cost, but it's not cheap. And they finally found the right person. But I love that they gave us the general NBC line. You know, it's like what you almost what you call for customer support. <laughs> <laughs> Super helpful, NBC. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I've done a bunch of some video games. Do you want to hear video games? Do you want to hear movies? Absolutely. Yeah. I want to hear everything. I want to hear everything, man. But uh, I want to do. I want to go back because I kind of went out of out of order. I want to talk about Chernobyl. It's like one of my dream places to visit. I like to explore abandoned places when I'm not freelancing. So Chernobyl is definitely high up on my list. Let's talk about echoes from Chernobyl. Yeah, well, you have a book out about exploring sort of abandoned yes, urban places too. So sh wait, shout out the book. What's the title again? <laughs> so it's called No Tracers, An Urban Explorer's Diary. If you guys want a copy of it, you can go to justtheletterk.com slash no tracers. All the links will be down in the description. And now seems like a good time to put an ad in here. This is an advertisement for my book, No Tracers, An Urban Explorer's Diary. I hope you enjoy. I traveled to Portugal with my father for a week, and one afternoon I asked our tour guide, Diogo, if he'd take me to an abandoned restaurant for lunch, and he was more than happy to. This is the abandoned Panoramico de Monsanto, a restaurant built by Chavez Costa in the middle of a national park, next to a military base, under the protection of a very kind security guard, about 30 minutes outside of Lisbon. With stunning 270-degree panoramic views of all of Lisbon and the surrounding areas, from the ocean to the mountains, this place was absolutely incredible. The graffiti seemed to fit perfectly, and I honestly have trouble picturing the place without the graffiti. It truly adds to the character of the building by turning an unfurnished restaurant into somewhat of an art gallery. I wonder what this place really looked like when it was open. I also wonder what Chavez Costa thinks of what these artists have done to bring some color back to his decaying design. I wonder if he's been back. I would love to explore it with him. If anyone knows Chavez, please tell him to find me an email, holler, or knock on my door. This was my first international exploration, and I am more than certain that there is nothing like this in America. 
This place is so unique and in such a beautiful, secretive location that I don't think anything in the U.S. can compete. A spiral staircase and a panoramic restaurant? How incredible is that? I'm so grateful for urban exploring, as it has brought me to some of the coolest places in the world. I now have friends across the globe that explore that, at any time, I can message on any app or send them a carrier pigeon, and they'll drop everything to go explore with me and show me the best places in their town to photograph and investigate. If you want to hear more stories about urban exploration and the places I've been to, check out No Tracers, an urban explorer's diary at justtheletterk.com slash no tracers. But yeah, definitely check out the book. Uh, abandoned places have been, you know, a, a guilty pleasure of mine since I was a kid. Yeah. So um, me too, to some extent. I love, you know, Cuba has just to hop to Cuba for a second. Cuba has this just sort of worn quality like to it that's just incredible to photograph like um havana we went into this restaurant that the first four stories are abandoned and the restaurant's on the fifth story and there's a tree growing up through the lobby you would have wow yeah and it's a tree not intended to be there it just goes through like one of the walls i mean yeah you got to check out cuba at some point but anyway chernobyl so uh, chernobyl's sort of a thing right now isn't it because you know the hbo series just came out and i'm starting to see this real this annoys me, Kay. So tell me if I should get off my soapbox. But I'm seeing these like quote unquote influencers going to like oh my reactor God, four <laughs> and hanging out in the control room, and I want to shake them. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh my God, people are so unprepared. <laughs> oh, people are so unprepared because when I went there, I was probably 24, and I went there with two other um, uh, colleagues. Um, and it, it sort of it was right after Fukushima, so I don't know if you remember the tsunami hit the plants, and then you know yeah, a bunch yeah. of radioactive seawater from in Japan, right? So there was that disaster, and I wanted to go to Chernobyl and sort of figure out like, well, look, you guys have been warning people for it had been a couple decades at that point since the late '80s of the dangers of uh, nuclear accidents. How does it feel to sort of see <laughs> see it happen again? You know, what's your what's your mindset for that? And then the story is also a little bit about what it takes to go to Chernobyl as just myself and two other filmmakers. Um, it is an absolutely terrifying place. It is absolutely terrifying. So if you see somebody on Instagram being like, oh, it's beautiful. No, no. The answer is it's terrifying. So you go there and the first thing you notice is all of the roads are raised up maybe six or seven meters, right? So you're like, oh, that's weird. Why does everybody raise the roads Um in Ukraine. What a strange engineering style. That's not it. They had removed the topsoil around the roads because of the high levels of radiation in the ground. It's it's just everything about it's terrifying. So all the radiation is in metal, weirdly, and some in organic matter. But pretty much the worst thing you can do at Chernobyl is, say, cut your arm <laughs> on a piece oh, of like sure. rusty metal. Absolutely don't do it. So... Um, uh, we stayed overnight in this sort of corrugated metal shed facility. <laughs> um, you know, we, there's a certain amount. Of, if you do the math on all this, you feel a little bit better about the adventure side, right? So if you stay a certain number of hours, you're only exposing yourself to basically the same amount of radiation you get from like the connecting flight from Amsterdam to Kiev. So, you know, really, you got to do the math. You got to know, you know, know the kinds of things you have to do to avoid 
contaminating yourself in a adverse way. So anyway, we're staying overnight in this corrugated metal, metal just hotel-ish, barely a hotel. Uh, there's no one else there, right? So hotel's too strong. I, a shed is really what it is. And I was told this story about from our fixer, um, or maybe it was our PA Anton, and a few rooms down had just been blocked off because there was this scientist who had constantly been going into this place called the Red Forest, which is sort of north. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, don't go to the Red Forest. Don't go right. to the Red Forest. So he had constantly been going in there and studying the local wildlife, which had come back in a big way, right, um, yeah. in the aftermath of, of the accident. And he had brought so much radiation back into his room that the room was no longer habitable. And this room was, uh, I don't know, eight doors down. So think of it like, you know, a Motel <laughs> 6 setup. It's not, it's a little, it's a little close. It's like a little too close. And I mean, everything is, about it is scary. And so this, uh, and then he eventually died of cancer is what they told me. I mean, just straight up. So I was about 100 feet from the reactor. Um, that's about as close as I feel comfortable getting. You see people getting into the control room. Now, there was a French company at the time that was building a container that would go over the entire reactor. The building. sarcophagus. Sarcophagus, exactly. And yeah, they just finished it. They just Great. At the t I mean, it took them like a decade, right? So right. back when I was doing it, it was really early on. So there wasn't a sarcophagus uh, or anything, but you kind of heard the clank, clank, clank of metal. But you never saw anybody just to add to like the atmosphere, right? So Creepy. Very creepy. Very creepy. And, you know, I, I climbed up a skyscraper in uh, Pripyat. I mean, really, I don't know if it counts as a skyscraper, but it's like 20 stories. I mean, significant old Soviet architecture. And I walked up to the top, turned left, and there was a black square in the floor, which is where somebody had removed the top unit for an elevator, um, like the pulley system, and almost went straight into that hole. So weirdly, the most dangerous Thing that happened to me almost just fell to my death it wasn't radiation or anything like that <laughs> it's just straight up falling yeah it's an absolute, wow. it's a horrible place <laughs> but interesting so yeah i just watched there's this uh youtuber i watched named shy and he's from the ukraine and he just did like a seven part series where he walks through the entire exclusion zone it's him and two friends and they walk through the entire exclusion zone camp and they like bring their uh, Geiger counters, everything, and they're just walking around <laughs> through Chernobyl, trying not to get caught by the security guards. And it's like they go through the Red Forest, they go through all these places, and you're like, oh my God, these guys are going to just die one day of cancer. You know, it's crazy what people will do to like explore that place, you know? And like, so you guys, you, when you went, you had full production you had you know access pretty much everywhere i assume right well we had ukrainian we had access everywhere but we had ukrainian fixers and then a production assistant so it was like a crew of five i mean you know um and then we had obviously permission to be there yeah we certainly weren't um you know running in there to uh, at, in the middle of the night but um yeah so we had permission to be there for sure um but I mean, even the people that are guarding the exclusion don't, zone don't seem to know a whole lot about what's going on. Because when we left the exclusion zone, because we're going through the official channels, I went through this like radiation detector that easily could have been from the late 80s um, to leave the zone. No one was there monitoring. They were just like, these guys, <laughs> these guys with big guns are like, go through this detector thing. I'm like, okay. And I go in this room, nobody there. There's no one at the computers. 
No, no, you know, do they know how this machine works? Probably not. So, I mean, who knows? To this day, I, I could be going in the dark to some extent. I don't know. <laughs> wow, it's so fascinating, though. Like, what a cool experience. Like, over, would you ever go back? Um, I mean, people ask me that about the island, <laughs> and I tend to say, no, I wouldn't go back, but I'm glad I did it. Chern- Chernobyl is a kind of fear that I don't enjoy. I like no know- wow. I like knowing where the things are that could kill me. So yeah. I get job offers sometimes where it's like, you know, get into three unmarked black SUVs, go to Mexico <laughs> Mexico cartel country, right? And I'm just like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. Or like Darfur or something like that. I won't do those jobs because I don't understand the local dynamics between who, which cartel is friendly, which isn't, which warlord in Darfur is friendly, which isn't. So if I don't understand how I'm going to talk my way out of a, a something, for sure. <laughs> and I'm never going to go. I'm just not going to do it. So that's sort of where I, sure. I draw the line. But Chernobyl is just a scary place, and it's a like under your skin scary. In a, in a, oh, yeah. so fascinating. Yeah. I feel like I would have a great time there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly, just from knowing you just a little bit, I think you would probably really, really enjoy it. Just please be safe if you go. <laughs> oh, 100%. I won't get in the Ferris wheel. Don't worry. All right. Thank you. <laughs> I might I might go up to it, but I won't I won't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Yeah, honestly. All right. So uh, you said you had mentioned video games. Let's talk about that. Um, yeah. So I worked contract for Electronic Arts for almost a year. Um uh, maybe a little less than that. So th- through a contract company um, based in California, and I worked on the last SimCity game. I think it was like SimCity 2012, maybe. Um, as an associate producer was my title. And then I also worked on a few uh, a- uh, apps, like mobile games. Um, and then I did the Command & Conquer like compilation set uh, at the time. But SimCity is sort of the big the big title. And my job was primarily to manage the um, Mac port of SimCity. Um, and then, you know, I did a bit of writing on some of the, the mobile games. I think one of the games was Tigers of the Pacific 2, <laughs> which is about basically taking World War II aircraft and shooting UFOs. I mean, was the story deep? I don't know, but I did a, yeah, I did a little bit of writing on that. But basically, yeah, I would manage a team of artists and programmers and we would just... Um, you know, sort of, sort of get it done. And Electronic Arts is, I mean, if you're going to work in video games for even a short amount of time, they're the company to do it. I mean, they're, they have some of the biggest franchises on the planet. And I really got a crash course in the whole thing. I will say, though, it's not too different from TV or film, because at the end of the day, you're sort of managing different assets. I tell everybody that, you know, if you just think of everything like we're making widgets, this isn't to minimize the great art that you're creating, but it kind of it takes, uh, again, a little bit of the fear out of the equation. Like you're just making a piece of content. You're just making a thing. Doesn't matter if it's TV, film, games, right? So, and everyone's like, well, you don't know anything about programming. How do you work with a programmer? And I mean, I just looked at the numbers, right? We had great numbers. So I looked at, if it took, you know, um, Gene five months to make this condo and it took Billy seven months to make this condo. I had to check in with Gene. Like, what's up? Why is it, <laughs> what's the, why is it taking you, um, you know, more time, less time? You just compare different tasks because not, you're very rarely rewriting the book in video games, right? You're making a character model, you're animating something, you're making a tree. Many trees have been made before. So I wasn't trying to pretend I knew how to make a tree from scratch in Maya. 
I just knew we needed nine different designs of trees. <laughs> so, you know, what wasn't too tricky, but everyone thinks it's this, this very tricky, unattainable, impossible, impossible. thing. Yeah. yeah. To get into it, it, it. I didn't find it to be that way. Well, that's awesome, man. I, I would love to do some video games, even if it's just like doing voiceovers for video games. I would love to just be involved in a video game in any aspect. Um, super fascinating. Uh, so let's talk about, you know, where film has taken you. You know, you've gone all over the United States. Let's talk about some of your favorite places that you've been. So I've been to six out of seven continents. Um I mean, Mongolia is pretty great. South Korea is pretty great. Uh, the Australian outback. Um, Cuba, Cuba's interesting because Cuba is that same sort of paranoid fear, weirdly, that I get in Chernobyl. And I don't want, right. I, and I don't want to <laughs> just have this podcast be about how I've been afraid on every project I've been on. <laughs> but uh, Cuba's sort of upsetting because you get, as an American citizen, you know, I had to get permission to go, obviously. Um, I maybe told a tiny little white lie and said it was a tourism documentary and it was 100% a political documentary Attaboy. to the Cuban government. <laughs> they started getting very angry. So they have this weird thing where they'll follow you with three people wearing beige pants and white shirts. And then they'll have someone with you that's dressed nearly the same. But the three people that are following you, they always hang back like 40 yards. or So it's weird, right? It's like... Not the best spy craft when everyone's wearing like the intelligence agency uniform of the Cuban government. Um, so my memory cards were taken out of the hotel room for 48 hours. And then I found out our hotel room was in the same building as the Cuban National Intelligence Agency. <laughs> you know, wow. they just really, really <laughs> care. At least at the time, they really cared about their message and what an American was doing in the country. It, right before I had gone, a um, Christian missionary had smuggled in a sat phone for quote unquote dissidents and he had been arrested. So this is an American citizen in prison. Um, wow. Yeah. And I mean, it's a very eye opening experience. As I said, beautiful country. If you're Canadian, if you're a Brit, people like that, it's probably not a big deal to go to Cuba. But at the time for an American, it really was. But I met a University of Cuba, of Cuba, Havana, excuse me, University of Havana professor um, who told me about one of his colleagues had been hospitalized for malnutrition. This is a professor at the national at their main university in the country because they're making like 50 U.S. dollars a month. So it's a hard it's a hard place. I mean, it, it looks beautiful, but like anything, when you scratch a, just a little bit beneath the surface, the whole thing just unravels, right? It's just because it, we I was I wanted to do a quick uh, segment for the series about like the cars, the famous cars they have there that have like cobbled together parts from Russia, you know, things like that. Um, but it you, you go there and the cars are beautiful and then you realize why they actually have to use parts. It's because of an embargo. It's, <laughs> you know, so you go in trying to tell something positive. And I, I even, I shadowed the, in the control room of their national television service. And me standing in the control room as they filmed this kid's game show, everyone just looked so uncomfortable that I was there. And you can feel it. It's a room of like nine people. It's a room of nine people. You don't know who's closest to the party. You don't know who's the most communist. You know, you don't know who actually wants to talk to me. Um, you know, because they're making essentially propaganda and they know that they have a family to feed. But 
it's just, you know, I don't know. I, I have whatever the exact amount of empathy or whatever it is to pick up on when the entire room doesn't want you to be there. But they're trying to pretend that their country is wonderful. But a three-year-old could figure out that there are some issues. <laughs> yeah. You know? Wow. Um, what a crazy Yeah, experience. so Cuba was an experience. I went to the Republic of Kiribati, uh, absolutely a, a standout project it's about it's it's kind of i tell people it's kind of near christmas island it's really not it's like four hour flight from fiji just in the middle of the ocean um and they're only five meters or so above sea level um and you know so they're seeing rising tide issues so i did a project there um the first uh out mma fighter liz carmouche i did something with vice uh, with her so she's kind of amazing too um yeah i mean you know, I've been very fortunate. I've gotten to travel quite a bit. At one point, my career was about 50% travel. So I'm actually trying to cut back a little bit on that because I like spending time with my, you know, two and a half year old Hugo Terrier, uh, <laughs> Terrier Hugo. Um, and then, of course, you know, my wife and my family and everything. So I'm trying to stay closer to home more. Definitely. And so when did you get your part 107? When did that come into play? When did that get added to your uh, your catalog of gear in your resume you know um i think you have one too right you're a drone pilot do you have one yes okay yeah yes. great so i don't know probably about the same time was it 2016 you probably remember better than i do 2016 maybe ish 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 yeah, yeah whenever the faa like made it a thing i was flying drones long before that um but you know i mean much like you you have a bunch of different hyphens you know you're an author podcast freelance urban explorer all these things so i tried to just when somebody has a need, even for a quick drone shot, I like to be the person that can give them that. I, you know, because I've already sort of figured out the answer to the question. Well, have you ever had a hard job experience? You know what I mean? Can you tell me about that story? I'll just, you know, whip out one of the Chernobyl stories. Um, <laughs> I already have that. But then there, you, when they want a drone pilot, or they, if they want somebody who's experienced, I don't know, shooting whatever scripted any sort of thing like but scripted with a doc feel things like that i just like having the ability to say yes i have that skill set i think i would be a good choice for x project so you know i'm a, I'm a big believer in that honestly just uh but yeah drone flying i don't call myself a drone pilot honestly i'm just a dp and producer who ha has my license and i can fly drones it's just bonus you know yeah, and I think it I talk a lot on this podcast with my guests about creating an environment where you're an asset, you know, be mm -hmm. an asset in every way possible. Can you uh talk a little bit about that just creating, you know, like you're basically just saying like just create an a create an asset out of yourself and be able to provide for people. Yeah, so I tell people this, is this based on math or actual science? I have no idea, but I tell everyone you need to be indispensable after 48 to 72 hours. And then have an understanding of what that means, right? So you start a project and I need to, as a producer for in this example, I need to be unable to think of continuing this project without you. And it should be your goal to create that, I don't know what it is, mystique around you, right? And I say this because I see, it comes out of DPs a lot, to be honest. And I'm sure I'm guilty of this, right? But um, on the first 30 minutes of day one, fighting over how the highlights look in the corner shot in the reverse just you need to pick your battles and you need to understand what sort of political capital you have um in the first it doesn't matter how many jobs i've done or what my resume looks like 
even me to this day, a decade in, I still feel like I have 72 hours to prove myself. Doesn't really matter what it is on the, on the project, you know? And that should be your goal. Uh, obviously never to phone it in at any point throughout the project, but make yourself indispensable. Um, make yourself very, very valuable and then have your tiny creative battles. Seriously, that's the moment to do it. And that's like the number one lesson. Obviously, you need to be able to take notes. You need to be able to collaborate, all of those things. But people just cannot pick their battles in the freelance world. Recognize what's important. If the important thing for you is to have a long-term career doing this, always have that at the end goal. And I bet you'll find a middle ground where all of your shots look beautiful and you don't burn every bridge around you. There's a middle ground. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I recently, you know, saw a post online. Uh, some photog- music photographer is trying to sue the Jonas Brothers for using one of their photos on Instagram or something. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's talking about it. And it's like, okay, great. You can sue the Jonas Brothers, but like you're going to sour your name to the entire industry because of doing something like this. You know what I mean? Right. You just have to, you have to pick your battles in freelancing. It's so important. Right. Yeah. And, you know, working for free is always this huge debate, right? I never recommend it, honestly. But I will say whenever I've done someone a favor, about 40% of the time, they've remembered that favor and come back and hired me later. Like, look, you know, and the other time I'd say work for free as a director of photography is in the color process. Because, Kay, I can take your footage right now, the footage you're so incredibly proud of, I can make it look like an 80s VHS tape. Like right now, I can destroy it. (laughs) Right. So if you know that, if you've never worked with this colorist before in post, make yourself available to these people because that's all you have is the look of what your footage, you know, no one cares what it looked like when you turned in the card. It's always what it looked like when it was broadcast. So that might be the only, obviously try to get a day rate if you can, of course. Um, But if the money isn't there for that, uh, then I, I would be a part of the color process whenever possible as a cinematographer. For sure. And uh, for day rates, how long did it take you to figure out your day rate? Like, was it something you had to figure out over time or did it, did you just know how much to charge? Uh, you know, shout out to my wife and business partner, Rin, for this. But she's the one who's always like, you should charge more. <laughs> you should charge more. You know, like at the most over coffee in the morning, you know, you should you should charge more. <laughs> so I wish I could say I have a um, good sense of my own worth. But I mean, like I think a lot of freelancers, there's absolutely imposter syndrome sometimes <laughs> for, for doing what you know, I'm doing. So honestly, she's been the biggest proponent of me raising my day rate <laughs> over the years, for better or for worse. Um, and you know, I do the same calculations that everybody tells you to do. It's like, okay, well, how many hours am I doing on this thing? Um, but it's a constant struggle, right? Is is even just finding out, well, should this be a weekly rate, hourly rate, day rate? Um, as a producer, it sort of all varies. I consult on things, so it's sort of an, you know, it becomes an hour rate at some at some point. But this is the type of thing in freelancing that people usually hate. They they don't get into it because they like the business side. You know, really? I mean, of course, <laughs> right, of course not. Yeah. So they, they want to make the art. And, and this is the key part where I think most people honestly fail in the freelance world is the business side of things is the day rate thing. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I just uh, I just ca- you, you can test the market to some extent. Right. If you raise your day rate 100 bucks or whatever it is and you keep getting turned down, 
I mean, you know, if that happens four times, maybe lower it. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's a money thing. I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it, it could be it could be that. But you got to kind of test it out, feel out the market, feel out the uh, with the people that you work with. I will say, though, that once you've set a day rate with a specific client or network or company, it's very hard to raise that day rate. They always think of you as you're the 750 a day person. You're the 500 a day person. You're the 450 a day person. They think of you as that and they start budgeting in advance accordingly. So just recognize that wherever you start off with a company, getting any sort of raise beyond that is always very, 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 very tricky for some whatever reason in entertainment specifically. Yeah, and that's the same with music photography or tour videography or whatever it is that you're doing. It's it's all very similar. It's hard to raise your rate once you've set your rate. So mm-hmm. make sure you guys really think about what you want to charge before you commit to a project. Um, so for you've done a lot of traveling. So tell me a little bit about uh, what it takes to get travel gigs um and are are they paying for your flights are they paying for your hotels like what are they paying for what's covered what's not covered just for people that are listening to this that may want to start doing travel gigs like you and i do um what should they be looking for yeah so travel gigs you know are exciting you're going to another city etc etc and because they're sort of exciting i feel like production companies can get away with a lot so this is the bare minimum, I would say, that if you're going to take a travel gig and, and just say, I don't know, New York for this example, right? So I per- personally think you need a full rate for your travel day there and travel day back. This is open for debate, but the point is you can't do another job while you're sitting on a Delta flight headed to LaGuardia, right? So I always advocate try to get your full day rate for the travel day. If I love the company, if I still really want to do it, I might go half day rate on a travel day. I might, okay? Um, I'm lucky enough now in my career that everybody's sort of paying for everything, right? So you either have a company card or you have a certain per diem per day for whatever 50 bucks is sort of a standard per diem. Sometimes it's as high as 100. It can go beyond that for things like food and, you know, a toothbrush or whatever. Um, but just, yeah, recognize that as cool as, as being in a place that you don't live is, it's still, it's, it can be incredibly stressful. You don't have an option if you're in Mongolia and an audio cable goes down. So I always bring, you know, extra stuff. Thankfully, I don't have to pay attention to the audio department too much anymore, but, um, you know, or a filter or whatever it is that's just key to, um, your show in general. I will say that media rates, People don't seem to get these um, very often, but airlines nearly 100% have a media rate policy. Okay, so that's just per bag. Um, suddenly the, the weight of your Pelican case doesn't factor in. Sometimes it's a flat rate, like everything you check is 50 bucks. Every production company you work with definitely do the media rate thing. Now, um, I'm going to tell you a secret, Kay. you got to promise not to tell anybody else. But the thing with media <laughs> rates is is you can make a laminated card at FedEx that says, you know, uh, K pictures and, and mo- 95% of airlines will accept this. Don't lie. Don't do this when you're on a vacation. But if you're actually on a media gig, everyone thinks you need like a credit, you know, a card from a major network. That just isn't the case because that's also not how the industry works. 
There's people that are full-time photographers in-house for NBC, but for the most part, everybody is freelance that's working at all of those networks as well. Just make yourself a media card. Get an assignment letter maybe from your um, editor, your head producer. Just say it. Usually a good assignment letter will just say the following. You know, um, Kay is going to New York for me on assignment for Vice um, on flight, you know, 1157 on Southwest. Um, please extend a media rate to her. Put it on letterhead. It can be letterhead that you make. Just, um, you know, tell the truth. Don't abuse the system. But media rates are, are key. Always the production company should cover those uh, check bag fees. But if they are getting killed on the check bag fee side, that takes wiggle room out of negotiation. Maybe the final dinner isn't as, as much fun as it was going to be. You know what I mean? <laughs> so as a freelancer, I always tell people really, really care about the overall budget. I don't care if you're a second AC, first AC, but just uh, whatever it is, DP, um, you know, second producer from the top, whatever it is, if you create the mentality or the atmosphere that you care about the budget of the project that always really works for me as a producer i always notice that so if you tell me you know you could get this battery and it's 15 bucks less just giving me those options makes me as a producer feel like you care right because as a freelancer you need to understand the production company the pro the producers are taking on all of the financial risk for making this show happen Right. Always have that in the back of your mind. There's you know, you're not entitled to another episode happening. You're not entitled to anything, really. So do your bit, you know. I didn't even know that media rates were a thing when traveling. So you just blew my entire mind. Yeah, seriously. I mean, wow. Uh, absolutely do it. D you know, uh, check out each airline has slightly different policies. You know, some like Delta's 50 bucks, some are 75, whatever. Just know that um, going in. But it saves hundreds of dollars. I checked 35 Pelican cases for a Pepsi <laughs> for a Pepsi project once. 35 Pelican what? cases. I think our check bags fees were like 3,000. They would have been six grand had we not done that. <laughs> wow. That is insane. What did you need 30 Pelican cases for? I mean, one Pelican case has lens. Uh, lens. One is a monitor. Another has a monitor. Um, <laughs> and all the grip was sourced locally. It's a three-camera shoot. One camera package per each Pelican. Okay, where do the lenses go? Where do the batteries go? Uh, well, you're carrying on your batteries now. That's key, obviously. One case True. is a drone. Um, you know, it adds up quick. One case is audio. Look, I'm, you know, I'm almost there. <laughs> wow. That's crazy, man. Um, so... Let's talk about your Emmy. You have an Emmy award. <laughs> How did that happen? Um, uh, well, thank you. Um, so, <laughs> That's crazy. That's amazing. Uh, uh, you know, uh, again, my wife is always very good about telling me to like, bring up your Emmy. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to get jobs, but I, it's always hard for me to be like, hey, I have an Emmy. Um, so it's for this project I did called Crossing Borders. Um, you know, it's a uh, uh, sort of an expose on immigration and the issues with our immigration system. It was, uh, I think, an hour long. It occurred during the Obama years. Um, note to wow. self, my documentary would be significantly different if I had shot it during the current administration. But it was right. still a breakdown of, of what it means to sort of cross the border and why you do that. I mean, we embedded ourselves with um, this group called the Border Angels. And they um, leave water out in the desert along our southern border um, because it and then they and then other groups, other sort of anti-immigration, anti-illegal immigration groups will come along and poke holes in those same water bottles. Um, 
so we would follow them around as they'd plant a water bottle by a bush. And then the next day we'd come back and a, it, a punctured, it had been punctured and there was no water left in it anymore. So we sort of just followed the issues with the immigration system over the course of about six months. Uh, I don't know, this was probably six or seven years ago. Um, I turned it into the production company um, and they thought it was boring. <laughs> they, you know, this is great. Wow. I, yeah, they said um, milk toast. I never heard of this before. Mil- milk toast. You heard of this? Milk toast is like, I don't know, a, a, a boomer's way of saying boring. I don't know. Um, but my boss at the time, without naming any names, called it milk toast. And I said, oh, and then it played. <laughs> and you said, OK, boomer. Yeah, no, I didn't. I, yeah, I, I don't even know if memes were a thing back then. But I, I was like, oh, and felt kind of defeated, you know, because you seek that sort of validation after you work so hard on something. And then later on, um, it won an Emmy for topical in the topical documentary category. And then, you know. Old Graham would have gone back and been like, I won an Emmy for this milk toast thing, but I didn't, you know, <laughs> I, I was cool about it. I didn't bring it up again. <laughs> I didn't throw it in anyone's face. But um, yeah, I, you know, I just super absolutely an honor. Um, feels good to be recognized, you know. Uh, it's certainly, I, I think, good for the career, but it's not the only thing. You know, you still have to be able to execute um, on every project that you, you come in with, but yeah, no, it's, it's cool. It's actually hanging out, um, right next to me on my bookshelf. Oh, there it is. That's amazing. Uh, so let's talk about, let's switch gears and talk about being a Sigma Cine Pro. How did Sigma find you? How did they get in touch with you? How did you become a Cine Pro? Um, yeah, so we have, um, uh, Sigma in common. I think we both ha- had the good fortune of working with them occasionally. Um, great organization. I've known pretty much the whole Sigma North America team for about two and a half years. For those of you guys who don't know, you, you absolutely should. Sigma is a camera and lens company. Um, they make the whole art line of lenses very popular. Um, and then the, the Cine Primes are sort of incredible. And now they have this new camera called the Sigma FP, which is just sort of, uh, mind blowing. Um, and I've known them for about two and a half years. I also, um, I'm a blogger, you know, when, I, when I'm when i versus sitting on my couch, I tend to sort of get my ideas out in written form. I don't call myself a writer because I've worked with writers that are just phenomenal and I know what that looks like, right? Um, but I've written probably 300 articles on, on technology related to the film industry for a uh, website called cinema5d.com. I've also written for... Uh, Sakudo's blog, Pro Video Coalition, a lot of blogs over the years, um, and of course Sigma's blog as well. So definitely go check that out. Um, but I, I just kept using Sigma lenses. I used uh, all the primes on a Discovery show in the mountains of Utah. Um, just sort of fell in love with their technology uh, over time, and then um, you know finally they asked me, would I like to be a Sigma Cine Pro, and that essentially means you know I'm I'm part of the part of the family to some extent. I believe in the products. I tend to use them on 90 to 100 percent of all of my shoots. Um, and as sort of a intellectual reward, sometimes they ask me my feedback on things that haven't even come to market, which is incredibly exciting as a as a cinematographer to get to influence a product that is maybe three weeks, four weeks, a couple months away from shipping. It, it just makes me feel like I'm a part of the conversation. Um, in a really, really, really cool way. So yeah, can't say enough good things about those guys. If you haven't 
California folks, if you haven't visited Sigma Burbank, definitely get out there. Otherwise, check them out uh, online. Yeah, they've got events going on all the time. Um, I've been filming a bunch of behind-the-scenes stuff, event recap videos, things like that for them. And I, I love getting to work with Sigma and use their lenses and just see what they're up to. And it's it's cool to meet all these Sigma Cine pros at their events because you get to not only network with them, but you also get the opportunity to you know, meet like-minded people and, and just be surrounded by people that love film and love photography and they love being a part of this world. Um, have you ever done any internships or mentorships? Great question. Um, I applied for an internship to work on the daily show at comedy central in college and they called me and I completely bombed the interview. You know, you know, the moment when they're like, do you have any questions for us? And I'm like, nah, (laughs) Oh, Oh, I killed it. I killed it. I killed it. Killed it. So that's as close as I got to (laughs) having an internship. (laughs) No, you know, I I haven't been uh, part of a sort of uh, mentorship relationship. I would honestly love that. Um, (laughs) I think there's sort of nothing more uh, sort of a pure expression of collaboration in the arts than doing something like that. Um, I certainly have a lot of colleagues that I exchange ideas with, but that's one of the tough things about being a DP, honestly, is there's only one DP on set usually. So there's not really another DP that you can kind of learn, learn with. So I've thought about doing more camera operating stuff for other DPs just as a way to sort of, you know, uh, see what other styles are out there. So that's definitely on my list, but I'd like to do it more to be honest. So I can't recommend it one way or another. It sounds like a good idea. Yeah. And then who are some of your influences? Um, wow. Influences on the cinematography side or producing, I guess. I mean, Rachel Morrison and Reed Morano right now. I mean, they're kind of having the career that I would love, love, love to have David Mullen, ASC, um, as well. So these are sort of all DPs, but um, uh, Morrison and Murano um, are, are also directing and producing as well as being DPs. So they're sort of embracing that hyphen that I'm so fond of, the producer DP thing. So they have careers absolutely that I would love to uh, emulate. In terms of their style, I mean, it's such a cliche. Roger Deakins, I mean, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> Blade Runner, are you kidding me? Yeah, I mean, Sicario, like, look, uh, I don't even know if it counts as, it's, it needs a better word than style, but I guarantee if you took a poll, if you, like, threw a bunch of pamphlets out of a plane over Los Angeles or Atlanta, <laughs> I mean, most people would check the Roger Deakins box, for sure. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, and then... I wanted to know, you've been doing this for about a decade now. How are you getting your gigs? Are you apply, Are you finding them online? Is it word of mouth? Do people just know who you are? Like, How are you getting these gigs? And how can up-and-coming filmmakers, even myself, how can I get more gigs? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just so funny. I wish people just, you know, quote-unquote, knew who I was. Like a producer just like wakes up in the morning. <laughs> like, Graham, give me g- Graham. <laughs> give, give me Graham on the phone. <laughs> yeah, you know, like uh, the, the bat signal. Um. How do I get jobs? So uh, over the last six years, it's definitely been word of mouth. It's it's a certain it's been 
someone I worked with before or somebody I've worked with before introducing me to somebody I haven't worked with before. You know, that's that's it. It's the kind of network thing. But early on, you know, I was standing outside the Target with the clipboard. Um, and then I also IPA'd a little bit back in those days as well. Um, you know, tape running back when tape was a thing. Um, you know, and, and even those people that I PA'd with still remember me and have followed my career. Um, and they still hit me up on occasion, for sure. But unfortunately, it's just, or unfortunately or fortunately, it's just your network. Surround yourself with people you want to work with. Um, be humble, you know. Um, I, I, I try to, to um, prop other people up more than myself. You know, as a way to, uh, as a way to get jobs is, 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 I don't want to say I have like an agenda or something, right? It's just a good thing. I feel like helping out other people getting jobs is just good mojo, you know, and sometimes comes back. So I'm always uh, introducing other people and, and creating collaborations wherever I can. Social media, of course, makes that much, much, much easier. Um, and then there's something about doing work begets more work. Let me explain. It's like go to a short film. Something about just being out there filming a thing makes more things happen. Um, and that's why I certainly like being a part of the Cinema 5D thing. I like being a blogger. Um, I don't, you know, the influencer word's a little weird. I, I like writing about film technology because it keeps me a little bit part of the conversation. You know, if... Um, and I think that's key is just sort of always being out there, um, making people know that you are available to be hired next. So word of mouth, though, last six years, that's been it for me, Kay. All right. I got to I got to meet some more people, man. I got to get out more and do some more things. <laughs> Let's make it happen. <laughs> Have you ever been screwed over on any jobs? Ooh, this is a great question. If I've ever been. Um, hmm. Well, a large company took 90 days to pay me once at a time. Gross. In w- gross. Yeah. And at a time in my career when I did not have 90 days to wait for that money. Um, I've worked with people that have been. um above the line so if i was a dp and they were a director where they just had zero understanding of cinematography that doesn't mean i'm being screwed over it's my job to be to direct the cinematography right but it makes it very 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 hard so let me encourage everybody just to get a basic vocabulary and understanding of what the other departments do before you lead a department you know, whether or not uh, there's a nepotism element to whoever, however you became executive producer on this um, project, just, you know, <laughs> have the uh, respect for others around you to really just understand what all the job the job roles are. I mean, that's sort of the first thing that I do when I start a movie as a producer is I walk around to every department. And then, you know, after the sort of niceties, I'm like, so what's wrong? What could be done differently? What could be streamlined? And then they, you know, without fail, maybe they don't know me well enough. They're always like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And then just dig deeper. Is it really fine? No, because it's, we're doing something incredibly complicated, but we're also not in combat. I hate when people are running around on set. I'm sure you've seen these people, Kay. Everybody's seen them where they're acting like they are in the initial stages of golf, of the Gulf War or something. And they, (laughs) they, you know, because it translates to the screen. If your oh, pe- yeah. yes, if your piece of entertainment was made with panic, 
<laughs> it show it shows up. So you know, yeah. I've been paid late. Um, I've never not been paid. I, I've heard some horror stories out there about that. Yeah, that's certainly a thing. Um, no, I've I've been I've been very very lucky. I've always had just a great team around me. Have I done things in my early twenties as a camera operator that I wouldn't do now that I'm in my thirties? Definitely, in terms of being just a foot too close to the cliff to get the shot of the hawk flying by. <laughs> You know, so my um, understanding of safety is certainly different. I mean, even with uh, Sarah, um, I don't know if we want to get in this, Kay, but does, if everyone knows the story, there was a AC that was killed on a, a shoot um, on the East Coast, and that sort of changed the industry in a very positive way. Safety is is paramount in a way it should have been decades ago, but now it, it absolutely is um, top of mind for every producer out there. Because I've had producers tell me, you know, it's the first AD's job to manage safety. And I say, I always, whenever I make a large organizational decision, I always say, what's the the deadline or variety article going to look like if this goes absolutely to hell? If it all falls apart, it's going to have my name on it. It's not, it might have the first names on it, but it's going to say, this movie produced, produced by Graham, by, let no. this horrific thing happen. Mm, mm. Happen. So just always have that in the back of your mind. Like, what would it look like if it was printed up? <laughs> Whatever decision you're making. Yeah, definitely. And uh, safety has definitely become more of a component of my work as well. You know, I've also sat on the cliff, on the edge mm-hmm. of the rooftop, on a skyscraper like an idiot. You know, we've all done the dumb shit. Yeah. But, yeah, you live and you learn, hopefully, you know. Uh, and, yeah, super unfortunate about that AC that, that died on set. Um, it's crazy that that kind of stuff happens and people just overlook overlook simple safety, you know, and, and it does happen. Um, and then my last question for you is, what is something you know now that you wish you knew when you started? Um, hmm. I wish... I wish I knew when I started how important soft skills are to this industry. Because when I I first started, I had this sort of steely demeanor, which wasn't me. You know what I mean? This like intense sort of pseudo professionalism. I always put up this like shield because I had this, you know, that imposter thing, that imposter syndrome where I felt like, oh, I don't I maybe don't belong here or whatever it is, like, oh, someone's going to ask me a question that I don't know, and I just want to look unapproachable. And that's something, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's something that I dealt with sort of in college and then um, through the first few years of freelance. But the people that I enjoy working with the most and that I continue to work with are the ones that have sort of broken through that shield. I like to think I don't have that anymore um, and are willing to talk to you like a human a human being and connect on a human level because everything about the human connection makes business better. Be professional, but get to know the person on the other side of the table from you um, or in your department because it is absolutely key because it, it'll open up a whole new world in terms of, of working freelance. It, it absolutely will. You'll know the problem 45 minutes before it happens because you'll see somebody not making eye contact or looking down at the floor and, check in with them, you know, because you're also a manager, whether you like it or not. And just, and just protect, protect your, your people and, and just be yourself. Yeah. 
Awesome. And where can people find you if they want to either see your work or if they want to get in touch with you for a potential job? Yeah, so um, check out my website, www.gramsheldon.net.com was not available. There's another Graham Sheldon at Microsoft, unfortunately. Curse oh. you! Oh. So, <laughs> gramsheldon.net, you can, you know, you can email me straight up. Thank you, Kay, anytime. Social stuff, too, you know. Um, just look around for Graham Sheldon that works at entertainment on all the different various social platforms and, and you'll find me. But yeah, reach out. I love questions. You know, I'll never not answer a question for sure. Awesome. Thank you for coming on Project Freelance, man. It was uh, great talking to you and catching up. Well, now that this podcast is done, I need to book a flight to Chernobyl. Let's go. Let's go. I got the inside scoop. I can go into the control room now. Yes. <laughs> okay, so maybe I shouldn't go into the control room at Chernobyl. As Graham said, it's not the safest place to go. Um, I would love to see the sarcophagus in person. It is... Uh, quite a sight. They actually just released a Netflix documentary series about them building the sarcophagus that goes over the Chernobyl reactor. So if you guys are super into uh, abandoned things or if you are curious to know more about Chernobyl, they just finished that sarcophagus. I think it was last year or in 2017 they finished it. So definitely check out that series on Netflix. It's super cool. And if you guys want to get in touch with Graham, I'll put all of his links down in the description for you. You can browse his website. You can see him on Instagram, whatever it is that you want to do. You can ask him some questions, whatever you guys need. I'm sure he would love to help you guys out. If you enjoyed this episode of Project Freelance, please do me a massive favor and leave some feedback. When you leave feedback, other people that are browsing through podcasts to try to find something to listen to, they might come across your feedback and give this podcast a chance. This podcast grows thanks to you guys, and I can't thank you enough for listening. We are almost at episode 100 of Project Freelance, and I cannot believe that I have been doing this consistently every single week for over a year now. And man, I am just blown away by the response. I have people stop me on the street telling me that they listen to the podcast, which is crazy because I've been doing YouTube stuff for like a decade, but people are recognizing me from the podcast. And I think that's super cool. I love doing this podcast. I love giving back to you guys in this way. And I love building this community. If you aren't a part of the public Facebook group for Project Freelance, I would love for you to join it. A link will be down in the description for you. I would love to see the work you guys are doing every single week. That's a place where you can network with like-minded freelancers and chat more about what you are doing. And you can collaborate with other people through that Facebook group. So yeah, definitely check that out. If you aren't following us on Twitter or Instagram, Project Freelance, there's no A. It's not Project Freelance because of character counts. So it's Project Freelance. But you will get updated weekly with who will be the guest and you will get a little sneak peek from every episode. Thank you guys for listening to Project Freelance. I will talk to you again next week on the podcast. And if you would like to be on an episode of Project Freelance and you make over $1,000 a month freelancing, hit me up at contact at justtheletterk.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to get you on this podcast to help share with the audience how to build their freelance business. Until next week. My name is Kay Nagonio. Stay strong, keep enduring, go out and go create something.